July 23, 2011, Amy Jade Winehouse died of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. In the early 2000s, when Amy burst into the music scene, music fans and critics quickly embraced her retro soulful and jazz-inflected vocal style, as well as her heart-wrenching lyrics. Sadly, Amy's art imitated life and the British singer became a tabloid fixture as her problems with alcohol and drugs led to a public career breakdown. Nevertheless, Amy's unforgettable vocal style and honest songwriting will forever cement her place in music history as one of the most influential singer-songwriters of all time. And we're back with another rockabies and I brought the dynamic duo back again today and you tell me your first name again my name is Megan and Christian yay they're back back. and the basil Hayden is back and now (laughs) Megan gets to enjoy her wine yes I do finally (laughs) but it's because of you that we're doing this lady right here Mm -hmm. it's because of you and I'm actually glad now that you said, why don't, why don't you do, why don't we do Amy? Yes. And we got another one coming up soon. We do. Oh, I know. Well, now we'll have some homework to do right. after looking at that documentary. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> today, the show is about Miss Amy, Sweet Amy Winehouse. Winehouse. And, and tell me. You know what? Well, I'll do the quote. Do you want me to do the quote first or ask you the question I'm going to ask you? Do the quote first. Do the quote first? Yeah. All right. This quote is by someone that she considered like the Miles Davis, her Miles Davis. Um, and we'll find out more about him. But his actual quote, this quote is, I want to sound like an instrument. I want my voice and my words to marry the beat. I go with the rhythm of it, and the words start to come to my mind, and these words could be based on things that have been on my mind for the past year, the past month, the past week, whatever, I write it. And I think that encompasses Amy when it came to songwriting and when it came to talking about her life, mm-hmm. you know, yes. which I think she was such a poet. And that person that said that was Nas. They were good friends. They were. They were. She really admired him. Um, in fact, Miss Mister Jones, I think Snarcier Jones is about hmm. Nas. It's not about they didn't have a relate like a romantic relationship, but she loved Nas. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question to you is, how did you come across Amy? Like, how did you know about Amy Winehouse? I I think I first heard of her when Rehab came out. I did not listen to her when Frank came out. Mm-hmm. I was in high school when or back to black when that record came out right um and it was just very different Mm -hmm. um i didn't get into her really until i was in college i started listening to her more really i liked her in high school but 
a lot a lot of what I saw was what the press would print about her. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't know enough about her. I, I liked what I had heard, but mm-hmm. musically, but as far as her personal life, I didn't understand. I mean, I was like 17 right. or 16 at the time, and I... I was like, oh, she's right. having a hard time out I mean, there. Yeah, she was portrayed pretty much as a train wreck. And it was pretty right. much, well, like, well, you know, dragging I mean, through the trenches. Yeah. Well, she kind of dragged herself once we'll see kind of through the trenches for other reasons. But you're right, a train wreck. Now, in regards to that, when you said you listened to her in high school, but you really got into her at college, it's because, you know, you matured, you fell in love, because that's what her songs are about, like heartbreak and yeah. the trials of a relationship. And Absolutely. You see, like, the the chaos that, you know, sometimes heartbreak can go through. Yes. Is that what it is? You like, um, kind of, like, matured to the lyrics. I don't know if that, that's the right actually, word. Actually, I never really thought of it that way. Maybe maybe that's the case. I mm-hmm. think I, I liked her singles that she put out right. in high school, but I dove more into her full albums when I was in college. So nice. her deep cuts, I really liked her ones that weren't on the radio. I liked. How did you hear those? I just listened to her records. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, Kevin, my friend, Kevin, I was, when I was working at, um, DreamWorks with him, he said, you should listen to this girl. And it was the Frank album. Mm-hmm. And that's how I first heard her. And I thought she sounds like um, you know, Billie Holiday. That's what I said. But I did enjoy her lyrics, and and then when the rehab, you like you, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's kind of sad. But we we're gonna get all into it. It's good and sad at the same yeah. time. But uh, so we'll just jump right into it. You Let's ready? It. I'm ready. You ready, Chris? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So she possessed a, a charismatic mystique and confidence when it came to her voice that made her so memorable. And we'll go right straight into it. She was born Amy Jade Winehouse on a Wednesday, September 14th, 1983, to Mitch and Janice Winehouse in North London. Her family is Jewish. Her older brother, Alex, was born four years before in 1979. Um, did you know she was British? Yes. You did. So mm-hmm. you'd have seen some interviews on yes. her. That's cool. I mean, they, they lived, a, you know, they celebrated, you know, the customs of, you know, being Jewish. So she, she loved that part of herself. Um, Mitch, her dad, described her as a mischievous, bold, and daring uh, kid. And her mom said that from the moment she was born, Amy possessed a fully formed determination to do things her way. Her childhood nickname was Hurricane Amy. Became should have been that way for <laughs> up into her adult life. I think it was apt. Uh, that's what her mom said. And she was bright but had a short attention span. Her mom said she was a show off even at school who always got into trouble. And she loved books, word games, and puzzles, which I think probably plays into all of the poetic stuff that she wrote. She yeah. really loved wordplay. Um, and I noticed from even the other rockabies is that she, a lot of people like herself who read a lot of books, always become great poets and great songwriters. She it's had to really be weird. Stimulated a lot. Yeah, I wonder if that's kind of a sign of ADHD or something. Could be. I don't know. I just thought of that. She was a daddy's girl. A phrase she later tattooed on her shoulder, and Mitch and uh, Janice would say that Mitchell and Amy were close. Her father would sing Sinatra to her, Christian's guy, mm. 
And because he always sang, she was always singing, even in school, and her teachers had to tell her to stop doing it during classes. Her mom said that she always loved singing. It made her happy. And by all accounts, she, she always had that soulful and powerful voice, even from an early age. Um, there was also a musical connection on Janice's side uh, as well, where Janice's brothers were professional jazz musicians. So it was already in their DNA. Completely on her dad's side by singing and playing, you know, Sinatra. Mm -hmm. And her parents also played uh, Tony Bennett. I don't know, do you like Tony Bennett as well? You know, I do. I mean, I think, I mean, back to the other rock vibe when we did Frank Sinatra, I think Frank was just, for me, what caught your eye, or I mean, one, one he's one of the more well known ones. Yeah. Um, but two, it's like Tony Bennett, I think, was just more relevant. Currently, so like right. it was more of like a historical thing with Frank that kind of. So you weren't knew. so much into the voice of Tony. You preferred the classic, wonderful voice of Frank Sinatra. I think I was just more introduced to Frank than I was to Tony. Tony. So okay, yeah. I like Tony. You like Tony? I, I do. He is an icon now. He's been he around forever in a day. He's in his nineties. Yeah. Wow. Really? Yeah. I'm almost certain he's ninety-one. Wow, Tony Bennett. Wow. Um, and he also loved, they listened to Ella Fitzgerald. She loved her. Sarah Vaughn. Um, that must be something. Um, and Dinah Washington and Carol King, who I love, actually. I love all those artists. But all these artists influenced Amy as well as hip-hop and soul, which I was surprised to learn about. Um, she said that her and her friends listened to En Vogue and TLC, and I love both of those. I was really shocked. Her first role models were Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper is a female hip-hop group of rappers hailing from Queens, New York. The sexy and charismatic trio knocked down a lot of doors and laid the musical groundwork for women and hip-hop when their first song, Push It, topped the charts in the late 1980s. In the 1990s, Salt and Pepper crossed over into the pop mainstream with a string of enduring hip-hop and pop-infused songs. Unlike most of their contemporaries, Salt and Pepper defied expectations by reaching another milestone, longevity. Today they are still performing their powerful love and party anthems around the world. She said that they were real women who weren't afraid to talk about men and they got what they wanted and talked about girls they didn't like. She said that was always really cool to her. Mm -hmm. And as a nod to Salt and Pepper, she and her best friend Juliet Ashby formed a duo called Sweet and Sour. Huh. Now, who do you think was sweet? Who do you think played sour? Amy was sour for sure. Totally. <laughs> you knew it. Yeah, Lou Juliet was the sweet one. Um, she said she liked forward-thinking hip-hop, like most deaf and conscious stuff like Nas. She loved Nas. And around the age of 13, she was blown away by Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las, and they influenced her look, which we would see later on. Mm -hmm. So besides the love of music, most people don't know that she loved WWE, Worldwide Wrestling, American Wrestling, yeah. Huh. She was addicted had no to idea. SmackDown and Raw. Hey, I was too at that age. Were you? Oh, God, I loved it. Where do people love that? I, uh, I used to watch that with my dad. Really? My I've mom. never got Did into you that. know it was fake? When you're really young, you didn't... You just I mean, love the look, entertainment saw, of it all. I mean, I saw Mankind get thrown off a cage by The Undertaker into a table. I mean, that had to hurt. There's no <laughs> yeah, way that's that was... Yeah, that's true. 
That's true. So that guy was a nut. But yeah, I mean, when you're really, really young, like, she was you addicted to it. I mean, I get it. I used to watch it Monday, Thursday, and Sunday. Wow. <laughs> Monday Night See? Raw, Thursday Night SmackDown. Ain't that something? Sunday SmackDown. She Sunday loved it. Something. But yeah, there was three nights of it. She her one of her favorite wrestlers was Chris Jericho. Yep. You know who that is? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest names, I guess, in the sport at the time. Mm-hmm. She loved that. It's funny. Isn't that crazy? It's funny. Yeah, she loved it. Would not have pinned her. For, yeah, she uh, loved American fan. wrestling. In 1992, see, you learned something new. Yeah, I did not Shocker. know that. In 1992, when she was nine and after her brother Alex had his bar mitzvah at 13, her parents separated and subsequently divorced. Mitch felt guilty about leaving the family, and Janice said that they had a very agreeable marriage, but he was never there. He was away a lot working, she said, and having an affair. Huh. So he worked a lot. He was a cab driver. And Mitch and Janice didn't have an acrimonious divorce, and they remained friends due to the kids. And Janice would eventually move on. So when Mitch moved out, Amy became disruptive in class. She assumed, and she was right, that she could do anything she wanted, and she ran rings around Janice as well as her other adults in her life, except for her paternal grandmother, Cynthia, as she called her nan. Uh, Her nan was a huge influence on her whole life, and Nan championed her as a singer and would go with her to auditions. But she taught Amy how to read tarot cards and didn't hold back when it came to disciplining her. Who knew she knew how to read tarot cards? Hmm. Um, years later in an interview, she would say, I don't think I'm scared of anything. I'm not scared of snakes or spiders or anything. Are you scared of snakes or spiders? I am. Spiders I do not care for. What? No, thank you. Really? Mm-mm. I don't no. like those. No, I- like if I'm not even home, I get a call. Hey, there's a spider on the wall. I'm like, okay, well, let it be or kill it. Yeah. No, no, you got to come back. I won't get near it. Really? I don't like them. So have you ever had like a freak out? And I'll finish reading this in a bit, but have you ever had like a freak out where you wake up and there's a spider? Like if you wake woke up, like in Home Alone, you remember that tarantula that that um, did you see Home Alone? Of course. And you remember when little Kevin, when he when they break into the house and he puts the tarantula on Daniel's, the actor who played him, Daniel's face, and he like had a scream fest. I would probably scream if that was on my face. You would probably scream. Yes. Yeah. What was it the other week or it was like the other month or something like that? You were just losing your absolute shit. It was about a big a spider. spider on our ceiling. Oh, that's really? Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's and there what... was a spider. And I it, tried to kill it. I even tried. It didn't work. And that's now. I was scared. And now, from that moment, yeah. we have a monthly bug service. Okay. All so right. That, that and what do they do? They come out and they just. Spray the outside of the house. You stay in your land, spider, and I will stay in mine. You stay in yours. That makes sense. So, Amy wasn't a scared of snakes or spiders. I, I mean, I get a little nervous about mm-hmm. Especially snakes. Would you be afraid of snakes? Mm, I mean, I just, I keep my space. I'm not going to freak out, but, uh, yeah, you know, like, I think it's really? more black widows I don't like. Oh, no. I, I, oh. But I'll keep, like, I'll make sure. The red spiders are lethal, too. Like, red spiders? Anything with the bright colors. Oof. Yeah. No. Well, you don't want to come across a, a black mamba snake. No. Oh, no, any but poisonous snake. So no, good. thank you. Yeah, black, black mamba? No, just Kobe Bryant, but other than that. Okay, yeah, then you're fine. <laughs> we knew Kobe was coming when I said that. I thought, oh, God, here comes mm-hmm. Kobe. 
So she says, I'm not scared of snakes and spiders, but I am scared of my nan. She's little, but she's a frightening person. And despite Cynthia's help, the responsibility for bringing up the children rested largely on Janice's shoulders, who had some serious medical issues. People don't know, Janice suffered, suffered from headaches and other symptoms that led her doctor to diagnose her with postnatal depression. Janice later was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is a serious disease. And there's no telling how long Janice had it before it was diagnosed. So I think when we saw that documentary, I know you guys watched it and mm-hmm. I watched it, I don't think they brought that into that. They didn't mention that at all. Yeah, because she said she ran rings around her, you know, she let her get away with it. But, but when you're suffering from multiple sclerosis, I mean, that could sap your energy. Yeah, and, it, absolutely. I mean, I think that that should have been brought up. I don't know why they didn't address that unless she didn't want to talk about it. Well, I looked at interviews and now she does like bring it up. That's why I found it so easily that, you know, she's been bringing attention to it. Yeah, I wish they had. Maybe they couldn't put in everything. That's true. You know, so her brother Alex learned to play the guitar. So Amy took up the guitar and she got her first guitar at the age of 13, a Fender Stratocaster. And later on, she loved playing the Gresh White Falcon. I, I don't know what guitar it's that pretty, is. pretty. It's beautiful. Is it? Mm-hmm. Does it have a falcon on it? No. Really? Oh, so you've seen it. Yeah, she played it. She's played it in videos. I've that seen became it. one of her fate. That became her favorite one later on. Yeah. So at the age of 13, on April 14th, uh, 1997, she auditioned and won a partial scholarship to the Sylvia Young Theater School. And I think a lot of people went to the Sylvia Young Theater School. The Sylvia Young Theater School is an independent performing arts school located in London, England. Named after its founder and principal, Sylvia Young, the school was founded in 1972. Students from the still-thriving theater school have appeared in multiple television, film, and theater productions. In addition to Amy Winehouse, other well-known alumni are Leona Lewis, Dua Lipa, Nicholas Holt, and Rita Ori. In her application to Sylvia Young, uh, Amy confessed, mostly I have this dream to be very famous, to work on stage. It's a lifelong ambition. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles for five minutes. I want to be remembered for just being me. She loved the program but got bored easily, of course. Around this time, she got the metal stud that she would wear in her upper lip. And over the next few years, she acquired several more piercings. And one time at Christmas, she sang Christmas carols with her schoolmates there in one of London's subway stations. And she sang once in a royal David city, so powerful that people seem to stop and listen. She had that type of voice, even at that age. You know, it's kind of funny, and I'll just jump in here real quick. Yeah. So you'd mentioned earlier that she had yeah. ADD. Uh-huh. Um, well, we don't know. Well, we don't but know, but you, like, but, like, she gets bored easily. I gets mean, very bored easily. Even, Her mom said with, she was like that. Even with something that she enjoys so much, it's something that she That's true. just could not focus and That's interesting. Maintain. So a lot That's of people. ADD. Well, yeah. A you lot think of people so? with AD, so. ADD or ADHD kind of supplement right. that feeling with, you know, whether it's different products or booze or whatever it is. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. One of my friends told me that, that they supplemented people with like ADHD, and we're just guessing here about Amy, is that they do, um, you know, substitute it with like cocaine and stuff like that. So it's maybe she did have it. You know, I know in the documentary it says she suffered from depression, and I'll bring it up in two seconds, but... 
maybe it should have been ADHD that they kind of thought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my question to both of you is, you know, when you guys, when you get married, you have kids, they become a teenager, and they come home with a metal stud in their upper lip. What you going to do as a teenager? And this is around 13. Oh, she's 13? You're taking it out. No. But, Mom, I really want it. I don't care. First of all, how did you get it? That's what I, I yeah, where did you go to let question. that happen? Yeah, so we'll say around 13, maybe 14, 15, maybe between those Because I don't years. think you can get a piercing without a fake ID or somebody that's over the age of 18, yeah. right? Right. So, of course, somebody forged something and did something that they weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that, that friend's house is going to burn to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> I love it. We gotta get you some more basil because no, that was good. No, 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 that no. was that was the start of brilliance right there. So yeah, okay. So in her teens, she started smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol with her friends, especially when they got together for weekend sleepovers. One of her theater school boyfriends was Kenneth Gordon, who used the stage name Tyler James, and Tyler became a lifelong friend. He's even in the documentary. I mean, when you do sleepovers, aren't your aren't the parents there sometimes? Uh, yes. <laughs> so do you just I mean does you think they just snuck it you know and did their little thing like had somebody buy it and then um oh the the cigarettes and the booze yeah it's easy to get when you're doing sleepovers right Christian oh, well there's always somebody that has the cigarettes or there's somebody that has a fake ID there's somebody that and the parents probably got the booze in the house well, you know what easy. I mean like that's up in easy. the cab that's easy yeah from whole holiday parties or parties that they've had like there's stuff that they don't drink right that they're never going to miss. So I see you speaking from experience. Oh, yeah. Good girl here, good girl here didn't do that. Oh, my brother did it. Okay, see? Yeah, but I mean... It was gone by the time I got to it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I can't Thanks, even Brian. have mine. I can't even have mine. <laughs> but you, you were like, they're not going to... We just top it off a little bit. I mean, God, we and used to do just... Put water we, in we there. literally stand outside of like CVS's and, you know, gas stations. Right. And basically say, hey... Can you buy us beer? We'll give you five bucks. And people would do it. Of course. I mean, okay. it's not like today. I mean, today. Right. I mean, everybody's got a camera. Everybody's got. And some somebody's sort going of, to like, jail on oh, camera. Yeah. I mean, you. It's it's a, it's completely different. So if these kids were like, "Hey, sir, ago. Christian, can you buy us this beer?" Hell no. Why not? You can remember from your day. Way days. different age. Way different time. There's no way that shit. Flies what if they're today. twenty? And they could prove to you they're 20. I don't give a shit. Okay. Then you're, not, you're not smart enough to get a fake ID. Get out of my face. Okay, good. There you go. Yeah. But then if you see the fake ID, you're going to be like, that's a fake ID. Fuck it. Get out of my face. Oh, of course. Yeah, go right. See? No, but no, no, I'm saying, like, if they're 20 years old. They're oh, they can get their 20, own. Yeah. Get your own fake ID. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. my age at 17 had one, so. That's true. I had, you know what? I had a fake ID when I was 20. And you know what my name was? And my friends laughed at it when they saw the name that I put on it. What was it? Megan. Was it really? Yes, I swear to God. I had a fake ID named Megan. Little did I know I was going to meet a Megan. Boom. There you go. Great things to come. But my friend, I remember, she looked at her name was Pam. Pam looked at it and started howling. She's like, you don't look like no damn Megan. I'm like, whatever. (laughs) Because I needed one. I got into Disneyland at the age of 20 as an 11-year-old. That's how young I looked at wow. that time. It was ridiculous. I know, crazy. Anyway, 
that was a long well, time. Don't say ago. that on this. I mean, Disney might backcharge you on that. Oh yeah. You know? Good good try. Yeah. Whatever. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I might keep that in just to be in there. But at 15, Amy got a Saturday job in a tattoo parlor and acquired her first tattoo, the cartoon character Betty Boop on her back. Her mother was horrified. Amy said, my parents pretty much realized that I could do whatever I wanted. And over the next few years, Amy acquired a dozen or so tattoos. Early ones included the Egyptian Ankh, or Ankh, or whatever you say it, between her shoulders, a fern on her left forearm, a lightning bolt on her right arm, also, at 15, she started to smoke marijuana and became bulimic, which she will be off and on for the rest of her life. Now, my second question. Your daughter comes home with a tattoo. No. At 15. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Burn the tattoo parlor down. I'll take a picture you, of your again, who, <laughs> Seriously, like, who got you the tattoo? Who, who she worked in a tattoo parlor. Well, it was their fault for sleeping. letting her get a job at a tattoo parlor. Who she gave needed her a job, job there? She needed a job, kids. She needed a job. And so your daughter comes home and goes, Dad, I just got a little Betty Boop. It's a little one. That was not a little Betty Boop. <laughs> you saw it? It's not little. Have I you didn't seen it? See, I haven't seen it. But well, you I mean, would be, I mean, would you make her take it off? Would you take her to a, a, a cosmetic surgery no, place? No, but here's, here's the, I would have had a little bit of a foresight to seeing like what could possibly happen. Okay, my daughter's got a job. Right. You're a, like, don't come, wow. Oh, that's Cynthia. I think that's Cynthia. She got Betty Boop on her back. That's Cynthia. That's her, I think that's her grandmama. That's uh, Nan. But, you know, you got to have a little foresight. Like, she's working in an environment that everybody there is So you would tattooed. say, listen, Amy, don't come on with no damn tattoo. I would say, look, realize where you're working. Right. Completely understand that that's the norm there. But until you're the age of 18 and you are paying your own bills and you're your own person, then you can do whatever you want. Just don't come home. Under my house, you're not going to have a tattoo. So you, you would do? just get ahead of it. Yeah, of course. Was that? Oh, that's it right there. So she must have hit it a little bit. It's small. Yeah, it's not that small. You know what she would do? She if she had you two as parents, she would hide it. I have a friend that hid her tattoo. I've had friends do that too. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what she would do with you two. So get ready, kids. Don't let them work in a tattoo parlor. No. <laughs> So by this time, she started neglecting her academic studies to the point at which a teacher at Sylvia Young warned Janice that Amy might not pass her exams if she stayed at the school. So Amy transferred to a private secondary school where she completed her studies, and Janice was now dating a financial advisor with two teenage children, and the blended families moved into a townhouse. The garage was converted into a rehearsal space for Amy, whose behavior continued to deteriorate. She said, I was a shit. I did whatever I wanted. I used to bunk off school, get my boyfriend round. My mom used to come home from work, and I'd be lying around the house with my boyfriend. Now, see, that's that right there. That's like, that's when I'm going to start calling the cops right there. If I come home, you come home, and your daughter's laying up with her boyfriend. I mean, it's just... What would you do, Megs? You and Christian, what are you going to do if you come home and your future daughter is like, you come home from work? Burn her own house down. 
<laughs> no, um, I don't. I mean, look, it's there's always a rebellion stage. Like, I mean, go. I guess as even teenagers, go, yes. I guess even going back to the tattoo thing, like, look, why do parents do what they do, especially at that young age? It's because mm. your mind changes so much from the age of fifteen to the the, the next fifteen years in your life. So what you like at fifteen right. is definitely a good chance you're not going to like that at the age of thirty. Right. So, but when you're fifteen, you think you know. You, you think you know everything. Everything. I just saw something on a documentary today. Speaking on that documentary that I was just telling you two about that I was watching, and a clinical psychologist said that when you're a brain as a teenage brain, you it hasn't fully developed on the long term planning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's it hasn't developed fully. So that's why teenagers do stuff. Because they're not thinking long term. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not fully developed. Mm -hmm. But what would you do, Megan? I don't have any idea, but you, I would, I don't know. I wouldn't, I, let's just say this. I'm not a parent, so I don't know how to parent right now. Right. But I would not let that fly. It's an on-the-job type I don't, of thing. I don't, you don't ignore behavior like that. Right. That's what I'll, I, I don't know the correct way right now to resolve a situation like right. that, but I would not let it just, just continue. Like, okay, no, I would just not ignore it, that. No, you wouldn't. Okay, no. good. That's the, that's the key word here. Don't ignore it and just be like, okay, I'm just going to let her do whatever she wants to do. So although Amy had now left Sylvia Young school, Sylvia mentioned her to Bill Ashton, the founder of the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. He invited Amy to sing for him, and he was so impressed by her singing voice that he asked her to sing at a pub gig in June 2000, and she chose to sing a song called Who's Blue, and she sang it perfectly, and the following month, he asked her to fill in a short notice on another gig, and she learned the songs on the way to the venue and gave another amazing performance. He said she was a 35-year-old singer in a 16-year-old body. He said that um, he didn't really see Mitch that much, um, and all his de dealings were with uh, Janice. And I sent you the video of her singing Moon River. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Christian, it sounds, it's, I don't know if Megan played it for you, but Moon, she sang Moon River with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. It sounds like a 35-year-old. Yeah, it's incredible. Do they have a little bit of that? Yes, in, in, the, documentary, in the documentary. To start right? off the yeah. documentary. That was her. I had to look, when I looked at the documentary again, I was like, who is that person? And then it said it, you know, Moon River, and I went online and listened to it. It's pretty incredible how sophisticated her voice sounded. Mm -hmm. And clean and pure, actually. Well, I mean, I, I think a little that I know, I mean, obviously Megan's more of, the expert on her and I think she's listened a little bit more but watching that documentary I mean there's very few people who could sing as well as she could right and I mean it, she's the only one that had that kind of from an early age too I mean, she, I mean there's some people that are put on this earth that just had that talent right you know? you're just born with it yeah mm -hmm. she was born with it and she had that suave affair about it but anyway so her next move was to apply to the Brit School in Croton, I think, London, which was founded with the financial backing of the British recording industry and Richard Branson. And it's like the New York School of Arts. Um, a lot of people have went there, like Adele, by the way. Adele has went there. The kid that's the current Spider-Man, Tom Holland, mm -hmm. went there. 
And um, on her October 1999 <laughs> application, Amy listed Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, and Frank Sinatra. She said Frank Sinatra was the greatest performer of his age Agreed. as her musical influences, as you know. He keeps coming in, that Frank. Mm-hmm. Keeps coming in. So Amy started at the Brit School on uh, in August, a month before. Actually, I was just looking at that. The 29th of August. I think that was Michael Jackson's birthday. I just thought of that. Is it? Yeah, I think Michael Jackson's birthday is August 29th, if I remember. But it's a month before she turned 17, and she came in with those piercings, the tattoos, and the thickly drawn eyeliner that had become part of her image. And um, But the sad thing is that her home and the Brit school were on opposite sides of London. So it was always hard. The commute was hard on her, and I don't think she turned up a lot. Um, she said the one advantage of the Brit school was that there were hardly any boys at the time. And she was like, where are the boys? And she said, due to the lack of dudes, she used to lock herself. She said, I used to lock myself away from the time of 15 and just do music because I hated the school. Every, every lunchtime, every break, I'd be up in the music room playing a guitar or piano. So she got to give herself a little bit of an education there. Yeah. Even though it wasn't kind of what she wanted but and also by this time her musical taste expanded to jazz jazz legends such as charles mingus thelonious monk and busta rhymes she would later say that most deaf Nas, and busta rhymes were the miles davises for her which i think is kind of cool were you expecting it to be hip-hop no i'm no i didn't i mean i knew she was good friends with Nas and most deaf i knew that Mm -hmm. but i didn't realize that she viewed them that way have you guys ever been to london no i'm not when you go to london and when you go to a pub you hear a lot of soul music like like you hear um it's like over here would you wouldn't hear as much soul music like you hear um what's his name um you hear angie stone you hear like stuff like that in these pubs and when i was in london i'd hear so much black music american black music they're very (laughs) hip on American soul over there. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, uh, um, soul and the blues inspired like the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are heavily inspired by the way they sound, like Adele and all them. Even Amy, you know, all these people are uh, American black artists, and the Rolling Stones, like they love Muddy Waters. But it's weird; they are so hip. like D'Angelo. You would hear D'Angelo's songs. I heard D'Angelo's songs in the pubs over there. And I'd be the only black person that was in that pub. And it would be like D'Angelo playing all of this soul music, American soul. Huh. It's very interesting. And I yeah. noticed that when I was over there. They, they love it. They absolutely love it. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. Well, you love Usher and yeah. T.I. and all that. <laughs> I do, yes. You know? I mean, we were playing old school, not old school rap. We were playing early 2000s rap. The yeah. The day today during the, uh, the engagement. Who are you playing? Show. God, anything from like Little Wayne to T.I. to Where's Akon. Tri- you to... hear tri- Tribe in there somewhere in the Tribe? No, 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 no. we didn't go. Early we didn't 2000s, go. Yeah, early, early 2000s. 2000. Not, not 90s. Mm-hmm. So, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was more of our college and high school right. days. So. Did you guys ever listen to LL Cool J? I never got into I him. I didn't get into him. I did listen to some Tribe. I like though. him, what? though. I like Tribe, Jurassic 5. Mm-hmm. Jurassic 5, wow, yeah. Tribe. Tribe, Outcast. Outcast. Yeah. So 
Amy suffered from depression and she began taking antidepressants, as they said in that documentary, even though she didn't know she really had depression, she said. She said it was just her, but she left the Brit school after nine months in May 2001. And during that year, Janice collapsed on holiday in Italy and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which explains why she didn't have the energy to fight a headstrong Amy. And on the weekends, Amy worked in a clothes stall in Camden and found part-time employment at World Entertainment News Network, which was a press agency. Now it's not so small. It's pretty big. Founded by Juliet Ashby's dad. People don't know that about Juliet. She started dating her first serious boyfriend, Chris, a journalist seven years, her singer. And when you listen to Frank, you hear her talking about Someone mm-hmm. who's seven years, you know, stronger than me. So meanwhile, Amy's stage school friend, Tyler James, who we talked about, was attempting to launch his singing career with the help of his manager, Nick Shymansky, who worked at Simon Fuller's company. And when Shymansky suggested that he record a duet, Tyler asked his friend Amy to sing with him. And a demo tape arrived at Nick's office, decorated with girly stickers on it, as well as hearts and Amy's name written all over it. And Nick would later say that he put the tape on in his car and he said it blew his mind. He said he thought he was the victim of a practical joke. He's like, they're lying to me because the voice was so mature, he said, and powerful that I, I thought it was the recording of an old classic jazz singer. And assured by Tyler that it was Amy, Shymansky called her to arrange a meeting. And as soon as the producers heard her, they were in as well, that were part of the company. And he described her as being very funny, very blunt. She was different. She used to make a lot of her own clothes. She was a personality is what he said. He was 19 and in working in the music industry, but he said he didn't really know anything. And he called her and pretended that he was this big-time manager who could make things happen. And he gave it all this little showbiz talk. And she just wasn't having this phony baloney talk. And she made it very clear. Like, I don't give a shit who you are. And she saw through his bullshit. So he quickly realized that humor was the backup plan. And that's how he got her connected. And he's all throughout the documentary, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um but it's kind of amazing how it just happened just that quickly for her. Well, that's all you need is one shot. That's all, and it was her first shot too, because she was offered a management deal, um, and got a recording and publishing contract, um, which gave her financial freedom from school straight out of high school. And she was an artist who had to work for you know she was not an artist I should say who had to work for years to get started, and she didn't have to pay any dues. I mean, she wrote in her notebook that she intended to take full advantage of the opportunities ahead and live like the bombshell I really am. So, and I think, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, I think that was part of the problem. I think that she got everything so easy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear about so many people that had to no one says no work to in her. the club. Her family didn't say no. And even she manifested this, yeah. yeah, No one said no to her. Maybe that might have been part of the problem. Getting it so easy. She deserved it. Oh, she was incredibly talented. There's no denying that. I just maybe that. But like even because there was no one telling her that. But even like Patsy Cline and Bob Marley, they had to like, you know, do gigs and work hard and. You know, just to get, I mean, it, she had the... She had the talent. 
She had the talent. She deserved I mean, look, the break. I mean, as you know, it says right there, Nick Schmansky. I mean, he heard it. He thought it was a practical joke. Right. Because she was that good. Yes. And unique. Yeah. Unique. That's the key. I think it's because she was so unique. That's what stood out. Yeah. And that's why things came so easy is because it's Uniquely like, gifted. There's a million of her. There wasn't. Right. There was just her. Right. Well, there's that. And I think the way that played out, like sometimes yeah. the timing of things just happened to be in her favor during that point. And the one thing I can say about her is that she was so not just uniquely talented, she was just so uniquely gifted at just being her. Like, she wasn't about being polished, you know what I mean? No, she didn't want that at all. Yeah. She was so anti-against all that. So, in fact, when people asked her what she was doing during this time, she didn't talk about her management deal or that she would be making a record, but she just said, I'm a jazz singer. And she told her hairdresser that she was a wedding singer. And she received a stipend from her management company of... 250 pounds a week, which is today's standards, $318 a week, which is good when you're that age. I mean, I would love $318. Why she worked up demos of songs that she could be used, that could be used to get a record deal. And the months that followed were happy ones for her, during which she was free to write and record at her own pace with young musicians and producers. So she wrote songs in a notebook that was decorated with pictures of Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, and Dinah Washington and early compositions from the notebook that Amy worked up into songs for her debut album, Frank, included October Song, which is a song that was about her pet canary, Ava, which died one weekend when she was away. And Amy's complaints about her boyfriend led to another song, Amy, 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 the concluding track on Frank, which is probably what we'll put on Instagram tonight. So so let me, uh, yeah. maybe I'm just connecting too many dots here. Yeah. The, pet, pet, the pet canary. Mm-hmm. Glad I spit that out. Pecanary, Ava, yeah. Ava Gardner. <laughs> Maybe. Oh yeah. I'm just connecting some dots here. Maybe. That's true. Cause of Frank. Yeah. The album's called you Frank. You never know. Damn. That was good. Damn. See, this is what she happens. I don't drink Frank. the whole bottle. I only have a couple. What else? Not even a couple. You only had one. Right, you had like you glass. only had like a quarter. Yeah. You really? That's watered down now. Oh yeah. That's that's. Fine. Your fiance might let you have another sip, maybe. You oh. have to ask her permission. He's gonna drive. She, she'll let me have whatever. It's the, it's the penny either we take a car home or or we Uber home. So. I or you could right stay. There. There's another bedroom in there. You all guys are always welcome. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks, yeah, and yeah, always, always. It'll be right there waiting for you, and it's comfortable. I can well, tell you. Well, that's what you got to turn and into I, the podcast studio. With mm-hmm. your fiance yes, can help me do I that. I will help you with that. Thank you. And we'll even post it on Instagram, the new, new, yes, um, the new digs. So songs that failed to make Frank included Ambulance Man, which inspired by the drama of Cynthia being admitted to the hospital on her vacation. Amy Scat sang an imitation of the ambulance siren during a song. Maybe people can go listen to it online. When she ran out of song ideas, she and a producer would sometimes go to the zoo Visit the Zoo, which inspired another unrecorded song. I shouldn't say unrecorded song because she recorded it, but I don't think it made it on to Frank, which was called Monkey Boy. 
and she continued work on her album in Miami with Salam Remy, who played a key role in the making of both Frank and Back to Black. And one of the songs Remy produced for the first album was the Fuck Me Pumps, Mm -hmm. in which Amy mocks girls who go clubbing to snare a rich husband. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that's what that was about. And her humor was equally pointed on Stronger Than Me, which is good, in which she vented her frustration at her boyfriend, Chris, which you know. Look, you're already shaking your head. You know. Yeah, listen to the the lyrics. You did? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because she said something about being seven years older than me, I think, in that one. Mm -hmm. I think that's the one. So during the recording of Frank, Amy's managers negotiated two important deals for her. First, a music publishing deal with EMI, and then just before Christmas 2002, a record deal with Island Universal. Amy failed to show up for the meeting, in which, which was going to be the signing. So that let you know she was just like, whatever. When, a, when one of her managers called her to ask where she was, she said, I thought I already signed that document already. So that's, that's what I'm saying. See how easy she got it? Mm-hmm. So publishing and record deals earned her a combined advance of 500,000 pounds, which is today $636,000, a huge sum for a teenager still at that age, 1920. And a limited company, Cherry Westfield, was formed in 2002 to handle the cash, and she owned it outright, and her mom was a director in the company. I think her dad ended up becoming part of it as well. So the cover photo from Frank was shot in Spitalfields Marketplace in East End, London. And Amy broke up with her boyfriend, Chris, before the album came out. At first, she was angry and upset about the split, but she got over it pretty quickly by the time she promoted the album in 2003, though she mocked him in interviews, ridiculing him in Blues and Soul magazine as a pussy man. Yeah, she always said that he was weak. weak. Mm-hmm. And stronger than me. Yeah. He was cute. I saw him in the documentary, but... So during her bouts of depression, her friend and roommate at the time, Juliet Ashby, worried about her. In an interview, Juliet recalled nights when Amy would bang her head against a bedroom wall. And also, Amy had started drinking and smoking mar- drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana to excess. So she named Frank as a nod to... Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yes. My boy. Yes. And for the directness of the lyrics of the issues being Frank, and it was released in Britain in October 2003, and it received positive reviews and garnered an Ivor, Ivor Novello, I wonder if I'm saying that right, which for Stronger Than Me, which is, became Best Contemporary Song at the award show. But she was never happy with Frank. She felt that there were too many musicians and producers on it. Uh, the album lacked cohesion, she thought. She was unhappy with the track selection. She didn't like some of the songs because they reminded her of Chris. And she was disappointed that Island didn't release Frank in the U.S. People didn't know that. It wasn't released at wow, first. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. No, it was several years after. Yeah. Rowan Bla- um, Back to Black. Back to Black was released. Yeah, they didn't think she was ready for the U.S. market. Christian. Can't get everything right, I guess. I know, right? And she was always unhappy that about that so nevertheless she set out to promote frank with interviews and concerts wait to hear some of this stuff interviews including a showcase at the bush theater in london in december 2003 to which family and friends were invited nick would later say that watching amy in these earlier shows was like watching someone in another world he said she would hit a lyric 
or a melody and her eyes would roll back. Her whole body would be so into it. He said, you just look at her and know she was gone. And he said, the sad thing is that at that point, she was only getting high from her music, is what he said, instead of towards the end when she got lost in the drugs and the alcohol. And he said that he never really saw her perform again like those earlier years mm-hmm. and earlier shows. That's so sad. Yeah, I, I saw that and I had to put that in here because I thought that was very telling. And so he said that she was very bright. He said when they used to travel, she would continuously read books. She'd do Sudoku in like five minutes. She was very quick at Sudoku and crossword puzzles. She'd do them at the speed of light. And he said, but she needed constant stimulation, which goes back mm-hmm. to maybe it was a little bit of ADHD. Yeah. I mean, you know, she was outspoken in interviews during the publicity about the album, Frank, and apart from mocking her ex-boyfriend and making it clear that what, what is it about men was partly about her dad's shortcomings. And she was outrageously blunt about contemporary artists that she considered dull, fake, or past it. Here we go. This involves her girl here. So Dido, she said, made her sick. What what did Dido ever do to her? I know, and I like that song that Dido had. White Flag's a great song. I like it, but I also love that song that Eminem did. um, Stan. Stan off of. That was a jam. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, But I love the original that Dido Mm -hmm. did. She said Britney Spears was a joke. I know. Look, look, you give me those those cold eyes. She's got daggers. Daggers. There's the daggers coming out. Talking about your girl, Britney Spears, calling it a joke. How did you feel when you hear that? Britney's not a joke. She's just taking shots at everybody. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> but you love Britney. Of course I do. It's your favorite girl. Britney song. Oh, I don't know. Your favorite one. I'm a Slave. That one that she did Slave with Pharrell. Is a great song. That was Megan's last Halloween costume. Yes, it was. It was. I it remember. Was. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. It depends on my mood. Depends depends on your mood. Okay. (laughs) All right. Cool. I do like that one that she did with Pharrell. She called Madonna an old lady. Oh, jeez. And said she should get a nice band, (laughs) just stand in front of them and fucking sing. I think it's actually pretty funny. (laughs) She doesn't give a shit. That's on YouTube, too, by the way. She was equally forthright about her record company and management. Here you go. In an interview with the Sunday Times, she ridiculed Simon Fuller. Now, people don't know who Simon Fuller is. He's uh, the powerhouse who helped co-create American Idol. Oh, yeah. And all the idols, yeah. This is early idol 19 days. management, yeah. yeah. He's still, I think, on the oh, credits yeah. for it. Yeah, that joker is no joke. Well, no, he, he basically run, He, I think he pretty much owns the American Idol franchise. You, I think you're right. And there's so many around the world. I mean, yes. that joke is a gazillionaire. Yes. And uh, she said, compared his pristine appearance to a plastic Ken doll. <laughs> As for her record company, she said, Island was staffed by fucking morons. The marketing of Frank had been a shambles, she said. It's so frustrating because you work with so many idiots. She said, they're nice idiots, but idiots nonetheless. And they know they're idiots. And her remarks alienated people at Island. Of course, if I was there, I'd be like, oh, I ain't going to put this on the radio. Oh, Amy. I know. How do you really feel? (laughs) (laughs) She was frank. (laughs) She was frank about Frank. She said that another thing I read, and I don't know if it was um, true, but 
she loved live mute like live instruments and i think she got irritated about some of the stuff that was on there that they put on there that wasn't live musical yeah. instruments yeah she she did not like that she did mm-hmm. she did mention that yeah i tell you she was a jazz singer she was truly yeah she said that things change nick said i'm sorry not she nick said that things changed for amy just after the promotional run for frank which ended in 2005 it was the first time in six years he said where there was a gap he said they had achieved the record deal. They recorded the album, promoted it. During the promotion of it, Amy was a, she was an, always a nervous performer, prone to stage fright, and to calm down before a show, she got into the bad habit of drinking both before and during the show to calm her down. So he said from the age of 16 until she was 22, she had been solely focused on her career. He said after Frank was released, she had a lot of free time and only a vague idea of what album number two was going to be about. So he says she started going to the pubs like her favorite called The Good Mixer, which was in Camden, which is where she lived, uh, which was by her apartment more and more. And he said her favorite drink, uh, he didn't just say this, but I also found out her favorite drink was Jack Daniels. And she developed a taste for Sambuca, vodka, Tequila and Jaeger bombs. Well, it's funny. Again, the See? Frank Sinatra ties. What was Frank's favorite drink? Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who love Jack Daniels. She was very influenced by I know. him. Maybe she. Yeah, I mean, she I loved think, him. But yeah. Even like her personality. Like, I mean, you guys He was very forthright. Bit, yeah. He was. I mean, we saw how he, well, he, he acted crazy. He was a prick. Part two, yeah. And part two, people going to really hear the craziness about some of the stuff he said. But um, you're right. She was a lot like Frank Sinatra, and she didn't really like rock music that much. It's crazy. Not really. Uh, by the way, you know what a Jaeger bomb is? That's oh, yeah. Oh, yes. What is a Jaeger bomb? Oh. Well, the original Jaeger bomb is actually a Jaeger shot in a beer. Okay. Now, today, a lot of people just take it with Red Bull. That's what she liked. Oh. No. <laughs> a shot of the green liquor Jaeger and Red Bull. Oh. That's what she loved. After a while, she was drinking everything mixed together in a pint glass. Although physically small, she consumed large quantities of alcohol. So everything changed overnight for her. And although she had a busy year, Frank had not been a huge hit, and her recording career seemed kind of in danger. So sometime in 2005, she met the love of her life, the infamous... Blake. Blake. While she was playing pool in a pub. I think it either one was a good mixer. I think in the documentary, he named another club that he used to go to. And, of course, everything changed. So during the summer of 2005, she got fallen over drunk all the time. And Nick started to get repeated phone calls from her at 2 or 3 a.m. crying and saying, come and get me. Oh, my God, that would be a mess. He said, I found myself driving around Camden two or three times a week knocking on pub doors and seeing if there were lights on, trying to imagine which way she had walked home. He said one of those nights she banged her head so badly that she had to go to the hospital and then to her father's house to recuperate. So finally, Nick drove her to the middle of nowhere and said, we're we're not going anywhere until you acknowledge that you got a problem. She reacted badly, he said, until she broke down and admitted that she needed help. Then she said, I'll go to rehab if my dad says that I have to. Nick says, fine. They drive to Mitch's house. And when they got there, he said, Mitch and Amy turned on him. He said, Mitch said, 
you're overreacting. Look at her. She's heartbroken. So maybe it was some mess that happened over Blake or whatever. And he said, plus, she's just getting used to her career and she's growing up and becoming a woman. She doesn't need rehab. Still, she was persuaded to visit a rehab center just to just to visit in Surrey. She made that brief visit, the sub, which became the subject of her song, Rehab, in which she describes her interview with the counselor. So in life, as in the song, Amy was told that the treatment program would last 70 70 days, which she considered out of the question. I think that's in the song. It is. And she says, no, no, no. She told the therapist. Then she left the clinic. And Nick would later say that he'll never know if rehab would have worked for Amy. He said, I think about what difference it would have made all the time. But who knows? The irony is she went off and wrote a song about that particular day. And it turned her into the biggest star in the world. It took everyone a long time to catch on to the fact that rehab is actually serious. She said no and died five years later. So do you think it was her karmic path no matter what for her to die five years later? Or do you think, like Nick, if he had just kind of foregone that masterpiece and went to rehab? I, I don't know, but... I think her dad made a huge error in judgment by mm -hmm. not. Well, everything that I've seen as far as in the documentary, I mean, it kind of seemed like it was more of a, a selfish move on his part. Like it was, you know, he was getting benefits from her career as well. Well, not and, even that early and, and on. He, I just think well, he even was him like, being oh, she's the dad, fine. she's fine. She's fine. Do you think she it's because he's fine. a parent, he just doesn't want to deal with it? That, you know, my, you know. Well, he wasn't around. Do you feel like you feel as a parent you you you've failed? No, you no. Failed I think in a way. failing is letting them kill I themselves. I mean, look, there's ebbs and flows in, in everybody's life. Like you have your highs, you have your lows. But because it's, sometimes it's hard for parents absolutely. to deal with when you got a kid. I mean, look, that we is. we both cannot speak to the point. Of, Me neither. And you can't. No, either. we right. don't. We don't. Re I'm, truly, it is just our opinion. We right. have no factual. You know. Right. We just don't know. It's but, strictly just our opinion. Based on that, because I had a friend who said it was it was almost like a manifestation in a way. I, I still go back to, I feel like things, like even when Nick says that there was, you know, she worked so hard for those six years. You know, she got the record deal. She got this and that. Everything happened so fast for her that would normally happen over a 15 year or so she for everyone else. She needed to slow down. But also, I think because things happen so easily for her, and this is the first pushback she's getting is, hey, you have a problem. Right. You need to slow down. You need to go to rehab. And still no one told her, no, you're f like. He kept saying, there's something wrong. Yes. And, and still no one is forcing her to do anything she didn't want to do. Yeah. So it's like she's still getting away with murder, essentially, you know, like doing right. whatever she wants. And there's no. Right. There's no pushback for her. She's just. And even, but even if, if Mitch had said, yes, you need to go into rehab. I guess the question is, if even if she had went into rehab, was it a, just a part of her path that it was just going to end up in the same damn way? I don't know. Maybe going that early on would have changed. Would have helped some she things. She was yeah. so young. I yeah. mean, she hadn't gotten to hard drugs yet. It could have been, been a little different. A bit of a butterfly towards effect. Towards the yeah. end, she was supplementing the lack of hard drugs for alcohol. So if she 
if they nipped it in the butt early before the hard drugs, or started maybe it working that way. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. It's a good thing. To, it's something to think about in a way. I mean, I thought about it myself. I mean, the way he said it when he said, she said no and died five years later. It was like, oof. It, yeah. Anyway. So here we go. Not long after they met, blank, Blake, blank. I called blank. him blank. Yeah, he's blank in the head. <laughs> Blake moved into Amy's apartment. Mitch and others, Mitch, her dad, and others believe that Blake was smoking heroin in the flat at this early stage in a relationship mm. and that he offered Amy cocaine. But it's unclear when she first started using this stuff, cracking heroin. There are, there are conflicting reports I've read. The you documentary know what I mean? says otherwise. It says after they were married. Yes, it did. And I think Blake even said he introduced her heroin after they were married. Yeah. But cocaine come earlier than the heroin. Okay. The cocaine came earlier. I don't know if it's crack cocaine or the cocaine, but something was, you know, because even in she when she wrote back to Black and she said, you love blow and I love puff. Remember in, in uh, Back to Black, the song? Mm -hmm. She's like, you love blow and I love, that was, we'll find out. But anyway, the first crisis in the relationship came while Amy was on vacation in Spain and Blake texted her that he was going back to his ex-girlfriend. Amy was in despair. She wept and she drank, and she was on the phone to Blake discussing a reunion. When she wasn't on the phone, though, her friends and family said she was writing songs about their relationship, see, even this early on, and she composed three important back-to-black songs in Spain, Love is a Losing Game, Wake Up Alone, and You Know I'm No Good. And, and so that's when she really started showing a maturity in her songwriting. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when it's very poetic. and Those so Love so, is a Losing Game is one of my favorite songs of hers. She composed it that early on while she's weeping and crying over Blake. What are your favorites? I like Back to Black. I like Love is a Losing Game, too. I do. Off of Back to Black album? What about yeah. Off of Frank? Stronger Than Me and Me what and is Mr. It about, Jones. I love What Is It About Men. Wow. That one's the good that's one off of That's about her dad, yeah. It's partly by Lyrically, the it's, I like listening to it. It's a good song. Wish your, wish your, do you know what? There's a favorite one of on, um, on Frank that had a great line. And I'm going to try and, and think of it. I don't know if I have my phone. It's you Sent Me there. Flying is a good song off of that. I love that song yeah. because there's a lyric in You Sent Me Flying. I should see. I can't find it now. I don't know why. Is something about your delivery was something. It's pretty brilliant. But anyway, I'll think of it. So Amy got back with Blake when she returned to London. And like many lovers, the couple used pet names for each other. Amy was called Lioness because she was like wild like a lioness. And he was Christopher Crocodile. I don't know what that means, but I just thought I saw that and I thought... Christopher Crocodile, but to demonstrate the sincerity of her love, Amy added another tattoo of his name, of Blake's name, over her heart, and then they argued and broke up again, but this time she broke up with Blake and told him to go, and she took up with Alex Clare, a mild-mannered chef whom everyone liked and was thought was good for her, but she craved her little obsession, Blake, and Nick said that he was very angry with Blake during this period. And he said after her death, at the end of the day, he realized that Blake wasn't a grown-up himself. He was a lost kid who had his own issues. 
And in the summer of 2005, Amy got a gig in Greece, and Amy started drinking as soon as she arrived in Greece and passed out drunk backstage during the interval on the first night. And they couldn't wake her up, and she was sent home the next day without pay. And in November 2005, she sang at a charity in which she told the audience to be quiet and left the stage after three songs. I'd want my money back. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's not good. Unprofessional. Would you ask for your money back? Yes. I mean, if I'm the promoter and I'm, I'm the charity, I mean, absolutely. I mean, look. What if you're in the audience? Yes. Well, I mean, look, I, you would think Has anybody ever walked out? I, I Have you know. been to I, a concert? I, I mean, like, if it's that's the sole reason why I'm there is just to see her. Yeah. I don't uh, think that's ever happened I, to me at all the shows I've ever yeah. been to. I don't think I've ever. Yeah, nobody, uh, no show I've ever went I to. Think, I think the problem is, is like, then you get the double sword. It's a charity. It's like, hey, charity, I need my money back. Don't give it to your cause. If anything, I'm going to voice my strong opinion about. Oh, hey, it gets better. I'm gonna. You let's gonna, hear it. All right, it gets better. Well, I got his message was brutal, but the delivery was kind. See, that's from you sent me. Sent me fly. That's one of my favorite lyrics of all time. That's a good one. Very poetic. Um. So while you're looking up that, when it came to recording "Back to Black," she collaborated with Salam Remy, whom she worked with on Frank, and a DJ and producer eight years her senior, Mark Ronson. By the way, do you know who Mark Ronson's stepdad is? Mm-mm. You know, Mm-mm. Christian? I know the name, though. You, oh, he's a producer. Yeah, yeah, he's a producer on the Bruno Mars. Um, and he works with Lady Gaga, too. Yeah. But he, the, he worked with the, Amy the, first, though. He worked with Amy right. first, but the big one for Bruno Mars was the... Um, don't believe me, just watch. That's that... that um, 24 Karat Magic. It yeah. wasn't that one. It wasn't that one. It was the one before that one, where it's Mark Ronson. It was on Mark Ronson's album, and it was Bruno Mars. And actually, they performed it at the Super Bowl. Mark was there. Uptown Funk. Mm-hmm. Mm, That's oh, Mark yeah. Ronson. Um, but Mark Ronson's, um, his stepdad is Mick Jones from Foreigner. Really? Yeah. Huh. His mom married Mick Jones. He grew up in wealth. I mean, he yeah. was... Um, and his sister is the DJ. Oh, who, Sam, with, S- Sam. Samantha. Sam yeah, Ron- the one that dated Lindsay Lohan. Yes, That's yeah, his sister. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, Amy visited Mark in New York in March 2006 and showed him the lyrics to Back to Black, and he came up with the chords. I think you see it even in a documentary where she's recording it. It was pretty awesome. Mark says that they were out shopping one day in Manhattan when she told him the story of how her management had tried to get her to go to rehab and that she had replied, no, no, no. And he said he thought it was so funny the way she said it. He was like, that can be a song, you know. And he said the words to music, which he was great at. As we know, he's a great producer. And he drew on their mutual love of classic American soul. He's another British. He's a British guy. He took... Amy to Brooklyn to record with the Dap Kings, which was a legendary funk group. Formed in 1996, the Dap Kings, an American soul and funk band, performed on six of the 11 tracks on Amy's 2006 Grammy Award-winning album, Back to Black. 
They also were the backing band for Amy's first U.S. tour in 2006. In addition to Amy, the Dap Kings have collaborated with such diverse artists as Mark Ronson, Bruno Mars, David Byrne, St. Vincent, Al Green, and Kesha. For many years, they were known as Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings until Miss Jones's untimely death in 2016. Fortunately, the Dap Kings continue to perform and collaborate with many artists to this very day. And they recorded six more songs from Back to Black at the Dap Kings' studio, including Rehab, You Know I'm No Good, Love is Losing Game, sorry, <laughs> Love is a Losing Game, and Back to Black itself. Amy recorded the rest of the album with Salam Remy in Miami with overdubs in London. And although the songs were recorded by two different producers, the album is very cohesive. She was much happier with it. In addition, what also made her happy is that it was made with talented musicians playing live in the studio as opposed to using samplings and digital tuning, which she did not like. She wanted everything live. So during this period, photographer uh, Misha Richter and her stylist Lou Winwood visited Amy at her Camden uh, apartment to discuss the photo shoot for the Back to Black album cover. And Lou says that when she first dressed Amy in 2003 for the Frank album, she had worn like a size 8 in U.S. clothing. Now Lou had to go to children's shops to find items for Amy to wear because she was so thin. Not sad. That is sad. But Amy had also perfected her look of 1950s style like the tattoos, the Cleopatra eyeliner, and add extensions to her hair, which she created that little tower beehive hairdo. And sadly, her grandmother, Cynthia, her nan died of cancer in 2006. She was devastated, and the devastation triggered more self-destructive behavior. In fact, Nick says that this was pivotal for her. He said that he showed up at her grandmother's funeral, he said, like she was going to a club. He said she was dressed like she was going to a club. But, and so she was, you know, he had wanted her to go to rehab so much and was really honored that she changed management and dropped Nick. Wow. And she, she got some promoter named Ray Cosbert to represent her. And six weeks later, Nick remarked how rehab was released in the UK and it gained traction and made her a star, which brings me to my next point. Uh, Back to Black was released in October 2006. And I said earlier, it was like a masterpiece. And it made me question, and I, I saw this somewhere, that if, knowing what we know, are masterpieces really worth it? You know what I mean? Because it was a great album you just talked about. beautifully done. Beautifully done. But, you know, it wasn't really worth it if you have to pay a price of not going to rehab and dying five years later. Well, I think it's, it's on her that she has to want to go to rehab. I mean, look, mm-hmm. even to the point where right. we were talking about she had to talk to her dad and her dad had to tell her to go to rehab and then right. she would go. She really didn't want to go. Right, right. So she, she knew how it was going to play out. Right. She just, she kind of played that. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know that not Like it's like this, masterpiece or not. I don't I think mean, there she, was a choice. I think right, it was. right, right. Her, her. Still, though, she was so young when yeah. that was happening. Like, yeah. You, yes, she's an adult. I mean, she was in her early 20s, like right. 21 or however. That's so 20. young. Yeah. But, but at 20, 21, like, everybody thinks they know 
everything. You don't mm-hmm. know anything. And and to her dad needed to to be, the point put his foot down and send her. But do you hours. think she would have listened to her dad? Yeah, I do I because you think she so? wanted That's to what please Nick him. Nick yeah, but I don't. I don't think she would have actually gone through it. I think she. I would've. think she would have. She got. She would have bounced. I mean, maybe if her dad kept his foot down. But I mean, look. There is no pattern in her early life that was gonna, that he was gonna continue to parent her with being right. with an iron fist. Cause no, he, never he did. wasn't. But he didn't right. even try. And even if he had tried, do you think it? We will get to something that. <laughs> Look, I don't know if it would have changed anything. I'm just right. saying. I'm it's also still, not a parent. Still. I'm not telling you right. he's a horrible person. No, no. You, you can't just sit back and watch her ruin her life just right, because you right, want her to get right. famous and right. reap the benefits of that. Right, and she was becoming so famous. I mean, she created a masterpiece. Her second album was a masterpiece. It was beautiful. And I don't know if it would have been created if she went to rehab. Who knows? Maybe it would have. That's what I'm Maybe saying. Maybe she would have lasted two weeks and then would have been like, no, I'm done. And then, yeah, and then, then just jumped out. to try. I know, which is the second point. Nick said in an interview that he always knew at some point she'd write a really big hit because she was a gifted songwriter. Yeah. We all know that. Poetic. There's no denying she would right. have released something else that was spectacular. I right. just don't know if it would have been that album. He said that it was ironic that the hit she wrote was verbatim that day, and he felt like it mocked him. He said even though it was what she needed, he said, in fact, he, can't, he said he can't even play it. And he said, in addition, he wasn't her manager by the time it became a huge hit, even though he was around when it was being created. And he was there during all the nonsense that happened. Um, And he said, look, he said, I think about it when I listen to it. He said, the whole world be dancing along to this song. No, no, no. And he said, around that time, I would go to family events and hear kids singing the song and think, if you only knew, if you only saw what I saw, he said, I don't blame people for enjoying it, but if they're enjoying it, then they can't be really listening to the words because this catchy, up-tempo song is about a dark, serious decision that possibly resulted in her death five years later. And I thought about it. There are other catchy, up-tempo songs that mask sure. some horrible thing. And, you know, I thought about it. I saw that speaking of your i know your dad loves bruce springsteen loves him. but glory days they glory said, days is an upbeat song but it is not but a happy it's not song. a happy song you know it's it's all these dark lyrics talking about time slipping away and leaves you nothing and you know but the boring stories of glory days or whatever it is that mm-hmm. he said it's just they're like dark lyrics mama mia yeah, if there's a think lot. About, if you think, yeah. uh, honestly, any artist you pull yeah. and look at their catalog, I mean, even we can use Britney as an example. Okay. Which Lucky one? is not, it's a very upbeat. What's it about? It's about a girl who becomes famous and has everything she's ever wanted, mm. and she cries at night because she's completely alone, and she That's feels Amy. something's missing. But it's such an upbeat song. When you're seeing yeah. it, you're like, Wait, this is kind of sad. Wow. You know, I saw something about a Taylor Swift song that it was up catchy and up-tempo, but it really... I'm sure. She's probably got a ton. Yeah. Any artist probably, maybe not any, but several. I mean, things that we even know about, like, like for instance, Copacabana. I love Copacabana by Barry Manilow, 
But they said there, one of the lyrics was there was blood in a single gunshot. And it's about a famous nightclub scene where it describes a scene in which two men are fighting over the affections of Lola. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl or whatever. And, you know, it's my party and I cry if mm-hmm. I want to. Um, and it's about... A, but that's so upbeat, but it's not happy. I know, where <laughs> a guy leaves her at her own party for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Or Call Me Al by Paul Simon, it said. It's about the regrets of a, and sorrow of a middle-aged man. Isn't that crazy? There's a lot. If we took the time to think about like all of our favorites... Yeah. And look, pull a song from each. You'd be like, actually, that's really depressing. I know. I was <laughs> shocked to see about Love Fool by the Cardigans. I used to love that song. You know that song by the Cardigans? Love me, love me. Oh, yes. That song. They said that by that Swedish band, the Cardigans. And they said if you listen to it, it sings about, it's a song about her, her guy falling out of love with her. And her desperate please for him to stay say that you love me leave me leave me you know what i mean as long as you don't go and yeah i won't end up in confused lost and confused i mean you know i love that song mm-hmm. it was just catchy <coughs> or even they said pumped up kicks by foster the people mm-hmm. they now this is fascinating i gotta say this during this is that they said it was like a great summer jam um but it's a about one of them it's about a gun wielding teenager on a shooting spree did you know that no and that they only wrote that to bring awareness to gun violence especially in schools because the basis cubby fink had a cousin who survived the columbine high school shooting in 1999 isn't that crazy Look at you. You look shocked. I was shocked I when I read no that. I would have no idea. Exactly. Well, you always had a feeling that that song kind of had that weird really? undertone to it. Oh, yeah. I was shocked when I read that. I don't like that song. You don't like <laughs> I just know the song and I'm like, <laughs> but it has this like, catchy. I just like change it every time yeah. I'm on the radio. I'm like, no. <laughs> I know, right? Even Mama Mia, when she talks to, yeah, I'm brokenhearted. Yeah, you know, sad since you parted. I mean... <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's true. I love my I love Alba. That's one of my favorite bands. I know it sounds crazy, but anyway. So Amy's writing talent shines through all the tracks on Back to Black thanks to her songwriting skills and talented use of wordplay. And her vocabulary is particularly interesting on me and Mr. Jones. And in this song she invents a word called fuckery mm-hmm. to describe what the kind un- of fuckery is this? Yes. Yeah. To describe the unreliability of her lover. But she was indulging in her own little fuckery by the summer of 2006 because she was sneaking around behind Alex's mm-hmm. back with Blake. And Blake was using cocaine, crack, and heroin by the time he and Amy started seeing each other again later that summer behind Alex's back. And I'm reading that. I read somewhere they were started using together by that point. By then. And it got bad very quickly, they said. But she assembled a band to promote Back to Black. And it was fun for her uh, because that was right before, this, like a smidgen before the superstardom hit. And she would travel around with the band, sit up late at night on the tour bus and sing lullabies to the, to the band, rest of the band to sleep. She's almost like Janis Joplin. I know I wrote about here like Janis Joplin. She would drink before the show to settle her nerves and on stage. But to me, she mirrors Janis, and I love Janis Joplin mm-hmm. too. 
And as the shows wore on, though, they would refill her glasses while she was on stage. And by the end of it, she would become very erratic and that she could polish a bottle of vodka off in no time, by the way, which is kind of crazy. An interest in the album grew in Britain during the autumn and winter of 2006, and the press and the public took notice of her, along with her photogenic looks, because she was a beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. Very unique looking. Extremely. And it was the start of her antics offstage, which made headlines during this time, which made her more famous. For example, people don't notice, but she heckled Bono at the Q Magazine Awards in London. She just won't leave anybody In September Bono? The man's a saint. She told him to shut up while he gave his speech. I don't give a fuck, is what she said while he gave yelled at him. And what wasn't mentioned in the press, they said, is that she was rolling joints at the table during the ceremony. Okay. <laughs> okay. She was serious business. She, she was like Frank. She didn't give a shit. She didn't give a shit. She was a honey badger. She, didn't give a shit. <laughs> she was. <laughs> in... October of 2006, she was invited on to Welsh singer Charlotte Church's television show that was filmed before a live studio audience on London South Bank. And the day started with an interview for a morning TV show in London. I sent this video, by the way, Christian, to Megan to look at. So I'm going to tell the story of that day and then I'm going to ask you what you think about that video. That Wait, which you, video? The Beat It one, where she's singing oh, Beat It. Oh, yes. This is when she's singing Beat It. So that morning, she had a drink of Jack Daniels with Coke for breakfast at 9 a.m., around 9 a.m. Then the record company took her on a boozy little lunch. Afterwards, she went to a pub and played pool. Lastly, they went to the taping for Charlotte's show. And she was supposed to sing a big production of Michael Jackson's Beat It, Mm -hmm. okay, with Charlotte Church, who's a big opera singer, very beautiful voice, to close the show, because that's how Charlotte's shows ended. I don't think, it never aired, I don't think, in the U.S. So by this time, she hadn't learned the song, and she was so drunk by the time it came to record it that she couldn't read the cue, the auto cue that was coming up on the Christian, I sent the video to Megan, and it made headlines in the worst worst way. But Rehab went to number seven in the charts, a decision that was made to make You Know I'm No Good, the second single from the album. Mm-hmm. So you saw the video. I did. She literally. It was out of, it was out of key. It was just like. Oh, my was, God. It was not good. I sent it to Megan. Christian. It was like she's just yelling it. Yeah, and and she was slurring a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, like for someone who has such an insanely beautiful voice. Yeah, she didn't really use it for this one. No, <laughs> and you see poor little Charlotte looking at her. Yeah, she, like, she, what she was is like, whatever. Happening? We're just gonna keep this moving going, but <laughs> woo! People can go on YouTube and see it. Um, so Blake started to show up backstage at Amy's gigs after Alex had left for his evening job as a cook. Chef, and by Blake's account, their mutual heroin use started one night when they were in London in a London hotel. He said, "Just having one of our mad little nights, probably behind Alex's back." 
He said we had a bottle of rosé champagne, he had a bath, I had a couple of stones of crack, and a few bags of brown heroin, brown for myself, which was heroin. And I was smoking it, and she said, can I try some? He said, I was out of my fucking mind. And he said, I said, yes, of course. So he, he later said, and I don't think I put this in my notes, that he would regret this decision years to come, but he was a heroin user and, uh, you know, she did anything to, you know, she just, we, as we saw, she was bored easily right. and she need to be stimulated at all times. Wow. It's almost like you see it happening. You know what I mean? So she walked off stage. She's, she's doing heroin by this time. She walked off stage in London in the new year after singing one song and she returned to her alma mater Brit school to perform for the students. Here we go. Backstage, Amy created a scene. Lou Winwood, remember the one that mm-hmm. was her stylist, said, said she turned up, she was late, and she literally looked like a plucked chicken is what Lou said. All her extensions had come out of her hair, and she'd been crying, and there was like black makeup all down her face, and she was just in a terrible state. She was shouting at her tour manager, I'm not doing this, I'm getting the train now because she'd had an argument with Alex. So she stomped out of the dressing room, slamming the door behind her, and unfortunately she walked into a closet. She reemerged, glared at everyone in her entourage, daring them to say anything. And someone said, piped up and said, wrong door. And then she went, oh, Lou. And she just left the building. She never performed. She was just out of control at this point. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, while all this was going on behind the scenes, Back to Black made number one in the UK in January 2007. Rehab was being played constantly on the radio, and Amy was in the papers almost daily. She won Best British Female Solo Artist at the Brit Awards in February, which she attended with Alex, her manager, parents, and band members. And while Amy was a rising star in Britain, she was virtually unknown in the States. Her first promotional performance in the U.S. took place at Joe's Pub in New York in January 2007. She was backed by the Dap Kings. She did well enough to be invited onto Late Night with David Letterman. That was a great performance, actually. Mm-hmm. I saw it. One of a series of promotional appearances she made in America in the spring of 2007. She played the Roxy in L.A. in Los Angeles. I read, though, that Courtney Love was in the audience. And it's kind of ironic, the connection to Kurt Cobain, who died at 27. So Back to Black had entered the Billboard charts at number seven in the United States. The the highest entry so far ever for a British female artist. That had never happened before. And because Back to Black was comprised of mainly sad songs about her breakup with Blake, and she found the content upsetting to sing it as time went on, she began incorporating lighter material into her set including ska songs made famous by the specials. Usually, and she usually ended with Monkey Man, which lifted the mood. I think it was Monkey Boy, Monkey Man, which we had talked about that wasn't, wasn't put on Back to Black, but she recorded it. So she broke up with Alex and became engaged to Blake. And when she went back to the U.S. to do further promotion for her album, Blake was by her side during interviews and photo sessions for Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine, both of which which put Amy on the cover. 
And when the journalist from Rolling Stone asked her about the scars on her arms, she said they were old marks from cuts made in desperate times. But she flaunted her self-cutting during her photo session with Spin, posing with shards of broken mirror which she scratched across <coughs> her belly to write, I love Blake. And a few days later, on May 18, 2007, 23-year-old Amy and Blake married in Miami and their parents weren't there. And I think the, the photo shoot was in the documentary with Terry Richards, where she had the shards of mm-hmm. them. I think that was with Terry Richards. So, I mean... How does somebody not do something about that at that point? Like, who photographs that? Terry Richards. That's fucked up. I mean, it's it's everybody's exploiting it. I mean, and I'm sure everybody's calling it art. And I know, because it looks fun to look at, you know? Well, of course. That, I, that's, that, that doesn't sit well with me either. Could you have done anything? She was already on heroin. It's, look, it's not that you could... I don't, I don't know. I just think if you said, Amy, you need anything, to go to rehab. Not saying anything or not trying to do anything, whether you speak to her people or you right. speak to it, just like you're enabling it further. Right, right. You're exploiting it. You're putting it on a magazine. Well, yeah, I love Blake. So, on the second part, we're going to go in deep into their marriage. And, we're, and we will be right back on Bart Rockabies. I call Bacabies. <laughs> Did I just say that? Bacabies. We will be right back with part two. Amy, Amy, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> 